talk about revolution that's going a little bit too far. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a little and welcome once again to more like the worst wing where here in 2021 we take a look at aaron sorkin's formerly aaron sorkin's seminal television classic the west wing from a bit more leftist socialist perspective i am Stu, and i am dave and joining us today is my spectacular and talented wife emma the resident west wing guru in the household say hi emma hello happy to have you on so the reason that we are joined by such august company this week is we have finally made it. Dave, we've been do, talking do, do, about do, this do, for do, years. Do. <laughs> yes. We're here. The one good episode of season five. <laughs> did it did it live up to the hype? Kinda. You know, mm-hmm. it's definitely it's definitely better than the rest of season five. I can definitively state that. There was some very just palpable knock-on effects to having such star power joining as uh, like as guest stars like Mm -hmm. to the degree that i don't think even john goodman was able to push for but just having just having glenn close and will fickner on the screen is just like holy shit (laughs) yeah yeah they bring a, a lot of uh power and gravitas to the production and you feel like uh you mentioned everyone sort of steps up their acting game and you could definitely feel it I think like everyone kind of put on their A game for this episode. Which is good because it's been a while. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and I hate to burst your bubble, guys, but the next episode's t- it's like the l- it's so bad. It's terrible. So enjoy <laughs> oh, this oh, while it's here. Oh, great. <laughs> well, so I think kind of just to on the meta discussion um, to, to talk about this, um, you know, this the. It was clearly but was struggling through season five and it seemed somewhat, uh, you know, I mentioned John Goodman and I was researching beforehand, like kind of the, the caliber of guest stars that the show has leaned on in its run mm-hmm. so far. And obviously like, uh, correct me if you feel otherwise, but obviously John Goodman was, you know, kind of the S tier in, in mm-hmm. that regard. And then yeah. it's been sort of, you know, there's been a couple others. Christian Slater was a big fucking deal. Um, you know, a few other A-list stars, but mm-hmm. this this episode goes in and all of a sudden it's like, holy fucking shit. Like, Glenn, there's, like, there's movie literal, stars. <laughs> like literal legend shows yeah. up here and it's out of it's out of the blue. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of a tell and a giveaway that she, you know, that it's Glenn Close playing this character where like. Because in the plot of the episode, she's meant to be initially viewed as like, oh, she's a distraction. She's never going to actually be nominated. But it's Glenn Close, so you know she's going to be important. <laughs> yeah. You you almost get the feeling out the gate that they're just sort of like lying by distraction. They're like, no, you, don't worry about it. She's not going to, but it's like, they're not going to, they're going to waste <laughs> yeah. her. <laughs> yeah, no, we're going to, we're going to book Glenn Close and then blow her for five minutes as a distraction candidate in the first five minutes of the episode. Yeah. So uh, I think it's a it's a it's a little bit of a it's a I mean clearly out of nowhere we we got the very 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 abrupt setup for what is currently happening in the show's mm-hmm. world for this right. last time where they just right. said like five minutes before the last episode ends like oops justice died <laughs> no no not the old one that you thought it would be by the way like yes not the old one that we've already spent several probably 30 minutes of combined screen time setting up to be dying soon Mm-hmm. yeah no instead it's like some 52 year old who just like randomly has a stroke and drops dead <sighs> you know the world comes for us all so uh so yeah so let's get into the actual discussion of the episode itself which just picks up with them in like war room mode over this of like, okay, we got to throw together a short list. We got to get some names. You know, the press is asking us all these questions, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's Josh and team scrambling to try to vet as many good justice candidates as possible. I think, Emma, you might know or recall, but like they run through just what to me struck me as just like a cavalcade of random names that they sort of 
pop up and then dismiss and pop up and then dismiss. Is there any, I mean, I guess you would know, is there any consistency to the show's world with those names that they mentioned? Like, have we heard those before? We have not. Um, No, we don't hear any of these names before, um, which is odd because, as you say, we've been going down this road with the Chief Justice for a while, and he actually lifts off a whole bunch of names previously that we don't. Evelyn Baker Lang has never been a part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I find really fun about this conversation is we had this conversation in season one, and we did a lot of vetting in season one when we got Judge Mendoza. There's a lot of stuff in here that never brings up another judge that they've already vetted. <laughs> so there, we don't ever seem to go back to that world. Um, and there's a couple of times when they reference like how many conservative justices there are in the court. There's a couple of names that um, that Mulroney goes through in his time with the president. And no one mentions Mendoza. We've also kind of had this plot before where they go into an episode thinking it's going to be the calm, moderate white man, and then they throw everyone for a loop and it becomes the Latino (laughs) or the woman. And like, we've had this, we did this already. We did this in season one. I happen Mm -hmm. to like the person they end up with as chief justice in this, but they do this in season one and we never hear the names again. Well, it's also, and as I was, like I said earlier, with the chief justice who's set up to be dying soon, it's like, um, we spent an inordinate amount of screen time in season one on Justice Mendoza. Like, it wasn't just a name and an interview type of thing. Like, we were road tripping with the dude. I would say also yeah. a great guest star in uh, yeah. Chief Mendoza. Uh, like, yes. also yeah. a good character. Yeah, James, EJ yeah, James almost. <laughs> like, obviously. Real legend, but... Like that's that's someone who you picture as like yeah that's a fucking Supreme Court justice in in my fictional <laughs> television show like that's the gravitas necessary and that's why Glenn Close and Fickner are also good choices uh, they also bring that but you're right yeah we're retreading that ground again and the only gimmick they have to it is oh, this time there's two instead of one we doubled it <laughs> yeah. guys more bigger than one is better right like the more people we can get. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's no they, there's no so, necessary like continuity within the game. Or the, I keep saying the game. No within the show within the yeah. show world. There's no show bible here. They don't have like if you ask them, hey, who are the fictional nine Supreme Court justices right now in the show? They would not have a coherent answer for you. <laughs> they just didn't care about that sort of thing. Uh, maybe Sorkin did during his time. Or at least Sorkin was capable of, and that's something I want to talk about um, This sort of brought me to a different point, was the reason this episode is good is it focuses on one storyline. The search for the justice is the entire episode, barring a minute here or a minute there of, of uh, small diversions. But I think with an inferior team... Now that Sorkin's gone and we have, like, you know, the showrunners and writers who had to step up uh, to fill the talent gap, they're better focused resources on one singular storyline that they can execute rather than trying to do the multi-storylines that all tie together in the end, which I think Sorkin was better at executing on a technical level. Well, and they're trying this episode. This is where they start to set up the long arc that will become the season finale um and with introducing andy leading a codell to i told the you Dave, i told you she would know. oh oh right with fitz wallace and everything this is yeah. what that's setting up this is what that's setting up oh because so. Stu and i were arguing before the show about what are they setting up with this stupid random andy diversion like it's great to see andy but like the plot line about israel really comes out of nowhere and doesn't tie into the main episode storyline in any way and yeah he was right you you would know this and setting, so that's what setting that's up what that's the, leading to got yeah. it got it got it i not, just not had the well. eureka moment <laughs> they're no. not doing it well <laughs> no not in a particular organic way or or with any sort of depth or anything it's just like oh all of a sudden andy's going to israel why are we talking about it in this episode uh i don't know <laughs> We're trying to plant the seeds for something that will become a very large point. Um, and then right. the other the other minor B story is that CJ has a guy, and therefore she can't be in charge of any conversation other than 
talking about a boy. Extremely uh. minor. It's like oh. Oh, like it's talked about at two moments in this episode and of like, I, oh, you're with Ranger Rick, huh? Like that's it. <laughs> I also just want to say that it's it's an incredible disservice both to the character and to the just the, the actress in general that they basically turn her into like a giddy schoolgirl. Yeah, like, she's like it's... love drunk all of a sudden. Well, and there's there are two I think really missed opportunities in this episode. Um, you have Glenn Close, who is who I want to be when I grow up. She <laughs> has eight Oscar nominations. The woman has won three Tonys. She is an EGOT nominee. She's not been nominated for all four awards. Um, you have her in this role, and even though there's a time when she's supposed to meet the president, we never see Evelyn Baker Lang and President Bartlett, which is... One-on-one. No. Wh- like, why would you take that away from all of us? Yeah. And then the same thing with CJ. You have this incredible woman that is about to become a PR phenomenon, and you never put her... The idea that you wouldn't have Alice and Janney and Glenn Close and Mike and Martin Sheen together... In a room, yeah. Complete missed opportunity. Yeah, that's a great point. CJ should have been, like, pre-vetting her or, like, pre-interviewing her, stuff like that. Instead, CJ just talks about her in the abstract, in the third person of, like, they're like, oh, don't worry about this thing. She has it covered. And CJ's like, oh, okay. And and (laughs) they don't get to interact. To to, kind of give the listeners some context in case you haven't watched this, although you should, so you should know what we're talking about. Um, they, they initially introduce the Evelyn Baker Lang character. They bring her into a meeting room and she says that she's like, Oh, so you're bringing me in for a stunt, right? This is all mm-hmm. for just, you know, PR, like for show purposes. So people can Winter see dressing. you. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And three reporters have come by in like the 10 seconds since she began talking. So it's clearly working. Well, and the idea that they don't have CJ deeply involved in that sort of a scheme is ridiculous. The press ridiculous. secretary? Yeah. yeah. The other, their, P- I think, their chief PR person. Exactly. The other, I think, missed opportunity in this, and I understand why logistically it wasn't possible, but especially given that this episode dives into abortion politics so quickly. Mm-hmm. Where the hell is Amy? <laughs> that's where a great is, question where is the women's rights activist that has been a very big player in this white house she has talked about all of these issues for years and i understand it she's the actress is currently pregnant and therefore not a part of not working but right. you don't even they don't even reference that like oh amy's been on the phone amy's called that was e- easily a line they could have given josh uh or something about that about Amy's concerns about whatnot. But yeah, the whole abortion plot gets sort of like handled by Bartlett just going like, oh, are we worried about any other legal behavior? Which, to be fair, is the correct argument, but uh, but the, the PR quote-unquote fiasco never just comes to materialize, yeah. or it so happens off-screen. With, and again, to sort of, to move this a little bit further into the thing, we also get a female guest star in Deirdre Lovejoy, who everybody will know as Rhonda from The Wire, um, who is the staff director for the Judiciary Committee, who Lisa comes Wolf. in... Say again, Emma? Lisa Wolf is the character's name. Okay. So she comes in to play the reasonable Republican wet dream. Mm-hmm. That Josh could talk to and work with and they could both agree on the good compromise of a nice moderate. Mm, Yes. Yeah. And that is, again, it, 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 even because it is unnecessary to bring in additional ginned up characters to push this plot along. It seems like it's a deliberate choice to be like, it's almost, it's almost like shitting on the development of women, female characters that they've had so far. Like, why? You are, you're actively choosing not to go with your bench strength in this regard. And, mm-hmm. like, Deirdre Lovejoy is a great actress. I, I love her, and oh, she's done a, just a ton of good work. But it's like, uh, okay, like, we've seen this character maybe once before, and now 
we're, we're putting these words in her mouth just to be like, oh, well, you know, we don't want the court to, quote, hurl wildly to the left because we might put someone who had an abortion on the court. Like, what the fuck? There's also a throwaway line about Abby. I like this guy with the good hairdo from Florida, but I'm going to vote for what's his name, married to Abby Bartlett. It's like, yeah, Abby would have been a good person to talk to, too. You know, a physician. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at least at least they did the honor of referencing her true uh even if they couldn't get stalker channing for this particular episode yeah yeah so we get a couple like at, at this point when we first see uh lisa come in and talk to josh like there's a couple throwaway points here where it's like leo takes a phone call and <laughs> in, in a absolutely bizarre turn of events is like we've turned down the potential for an Asian American nominee to the court. And he's forced to say like, we don't hate Asians. It's like, what (laughs) What the fuck are you even talking about? Look, you Um, can only, you can only pick one minority at a time. That's how this goes. You can only have woman or Latino or Asian. (laughs) There's really nothing quite as nice as having a group of white men standing around in a room talking about an issue that according to the show, only women care about and this yeah. is all women care about they only care about this issue and it's so nice to have a bunch of white men really stepping up and <laughs> talking about it amongst themselves without an asian or a woman or quite frankly a black person there's no person mm-hmm. of color in this episode aside from when charlie steps in for a moment oh my god we'll get to that <laughs> we'll get to that because <laughs> so that, that's I, I'm oh just, my god i'm glad that at least there's realism in the idea that yeah. only white men are the ones having this conversation. Yeah, that, that in the halls of power, it's just, you know, a bunch of old white guys deciding this kind of stuff. Yeah, at least that's true to life. And sort of like in this in this melange of brief vignettes here, we have Jesse Bradford coming back and fucking up the flower bouquet, the condolences. <laughs> yeah, for, yeah for he's the not... A- for the- in his words, he's not a details guy. He's a big picture guy. Yeah. <laughs> and it, in, jo- in Josh's words, you're only here because I can't fire you. That's the big picture. Sure. Yeah. At least we a get a reason line. about why he's here. Like we finally have a reason for Ryan in this episode. Oh, we, we knew he was some. We knew he was a senator's nephew uh, when he got first introduced. But yes, this this firmly concretes it because they actually need Senator Pierce's help toward the end of the episode. Yeah. So uh, and Ryan actually has a good tip that Josh sadly ignores, which leads to some hilarity. Well, so we and we end up seeing the introduction to something we mentioned before. Um, we see Toby's wife, Andy, who is also a senator, is taking a senator or house member. She's a house member. House. From Maryland. OK, OK, OK. House member taking a delegation to the Middle East. And she's amended her itinerary at the last minute to include a stopover in occupied Gaza. Um, mm mm-hmm. And to negotiate we, with uh, a couple of relatively in, interest, peace, peace-interested groups or something like that. And just, I, we don't need to harp on this because we know that this show is deeply Zionist and fucking toes the, the goddamn entire government line about Israel. But it's like, and again, Dave and I were talking about this before we started recording. It is very, it's so lazy to be like, I need to set up Toby and Andy <clears throat> here, and I'm going to use, mm, let me pick through the old Rolodex, an Israel-Palestine conflict, just to be like, to fall back to something like this is just deeply lazy. Um, and obviously, they, they this ends up sh- kicking off a plot line that leads to a major character's death, <laughs> funny enough. <sighs> yeah. So, yeah, it's just, it is, it's an odd thing. Uh, yeah, there's, it, it feels so out of place of the episode because the rest of the episode is all about the Supreme Court. And then all of a sudden we get this like, by the way, I, uh, Andy's going to Israel for peace talks. And it's just so out of left field. Yeah, I just I just really dislike that that's how it, it ended up being done. And then we get, you know, there's this more time filling where they, they rattle off a bunch of names and credential checks. Bow, 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 bow. Um, with these nominees, and it's just feel, it feels like it's just wandering around, and then, well, it's all just it's all just names and paper. You know, we don't see any of them until 
we get to the fir- the first bad nominee that they bring in, played by <laughs> yet an- yet another guest star. This time, uh, emergency medical hologram himself, Robert Picardo. <laughs> yes. And he's so cool. I love Robert Picardo. I, I I love him too. He's as an actor, he's doing a phenomenal job. But the character they gave him is so despicable uh, that I, I. But he plays him so well. <laughs> uh, where he's he's the just the justice who's like I don't have any positions. I take each case as as a blind neutral observant. <laughs> That's his whole character. Like, again, as a as a political operative, just Emma, is this take from somebody who would be in the hot seat for one of the arguably 15 most powerful positions in the United States government? Does anybody actually believe this is something that a, a Supreme Court justice would be like? I will say I am not a Supreme Court expert. I am not a lawyer. I am not a legal expert. It is interesting that the show portrays the justices, all three of them in this, actually really all four of them in this episode, and they did it, I think, to this extent in earlier seasons, as very calm, very deliberate, and very confident in how they view the law. It is consistent that this guy, much like I think Evelyn Baker Lang, like Roberto Mendoza, are going to come in and answer questions without, they don't ever seem to have like a political goal. They don't ever seem to think they're going to move up from their current role in whatever court they're on. Other than, I think, uh, Peyton Cabot Harrison III, who really believes he deserves to be on the Supreme Court in season one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, The others all seem to be very much like, this is how I do my job, take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's necessarily accurate. I think, especially given the last few Supreme Court fights we've had in reality, um, there are definitely people who believe that there's a political backbone that they have to have to get some of these, what are now seen as very partisan jobs. Um, the last big Supreme Court fight, obviously, Kavanaugh was a very heated Supreme Court fight. The one since then was far less dramatic, but it helped him to be seen as more partisan leaning and to, quite frankly, get more emotional than I think any of the character judges we've seen on this show. So mm-hmm. E. Bradford Shelton, not voicing an opinion and quite frankly flat out saying to the president a note like isn't this annoying that i'm not going to answer your questions <laughs> yeah seems to be very yeah. in keeping in west wing world sure but yeah nothing not really close to the real world where people have emotions and they fly off the handle and they're not like these confident law robots like all the uh, all the justice candidates seem to be and there's a there's a there's been a discussion lately um kind of in lefty world about legal positivism, which is basically where it's just like, we, we acknowledge that if we can somehow construct a legal system, a justice system and a structure of laws that all the, all we will have to do is make a bunch of AB choices and eventually arrive at a correct and morally just outcome in the system. And it just strikes me as pretty blinkered to be like, no, you know, these people we're putting on the court are not actually people. They're just robots. Like it is, you know, we, and at this point, let's see. So in Supreme court history, we'd had Clarence Thomas, like Clarence Thomas Mm -hmm. is, I don't know if it's in the show's canon. It's probably not because all the justices are fake, but it's in the writer's canon. Like, they are aware of what happened with the Clarence Thomas nomination. And so it just, I don't know if this was written necessarily as with a goal in mind, but it also, it does a very good job, especially with Robert Picardo, because he's a very sort of um, <laughs> he's, dour he's just and like, 
Yeah, he's the moderate's moderate. Like mm-hmm. it's like it's like the like you said like the Pa John's fantasy of just like someone who's going to go in there and like a robot just call balls and strikes the way he sees <laughs> yeah. them. You know, coming in with zero bias and and no pre-held opinions of his own of any kind. And like I just don't think real people exist like that. Well, in the comparison of his interview with the president to then the quote-unquote fight that Evelyn Baker Lang and Chris Mulroney have in the in the Roosevelt mm-hmm. room later mm-hmm. is such a stark contrast of this very quiet, I have no opinions person to these two going at it and like deep in discussion. Right. Um, and this is what they want to have on the Supreme Court in like, you know, in the idealistic sense of like, oh, we want to see great debate between the left and the right. You know, that's the conversation that Close and Fickner are having and not anywhere close to the conversation Picardo and Sheen are having. And I mean, this is this is my favorite episode of the series, and it's and a good is, one. Yeah. This is a good one, and the reason why is because this episode is complete fantasy. This is mm-hmm. like all if all of my wishes came true. This is how government would operate. That people right. look for brilliant thinkers who are going to respect each other and their opinions to like dig in deep and get to the crux of what's the best for the country. But in reality, it's going to be more E. Bradford Shelton's from here on in, as they say. Or it's going to be people who are looking for, like, the political jab that gets them a little further. But in my fantasy world, that scene in the Roosevelt Room with these two judges debating is, like, my happy place. Aside from the discussion of playing committee, which is actually really my happy place. That, that's why right. I love this episode. It's complete fantasy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 100%. It is the ideal of, like, how we like to think government functions in, in the ideal, like, happy place of our minds. Uh, but sadly, in the real world, nothing close to the truth. <laughs> well, so <clears throat> there is, um, the like, really the next thing that happens after the Picard, Robert Picardo interview is legitimately just Evelyn Baker Lang just straight up comes out and says, "Oh well, you know, also I had an right. abortion." Well, yeah, well, as they start have they've warmed up to her at this point because at first it is just the publicity stunt thing that she mentioned, where they're just bringing her in so reporters can see her. But then as they talk to her more and more, Josh in particular is like, "Wow, I you know I like her. I kind of want her on the court," and so they float it. And they're like, okay, so we need to dig into her a little bit more. And like, okay, so tell us some stuff that might come up. You know, do you have any pictures of you like protesting or stuff like that? You know, uh, Robert Picardo mentions like his kid burned Bartlett in effigy at college as part of a <laughs> protest. And he's like, there's a picture, it'll come up. So they're they're asking for any sort of similar things in her background. She lists also up a c- couple minor ones, and then quote unquote the big one, which is that in her second year of law school she had an abortion. And of course, to Josh and Toby, this is like immediate (sighs) record scratch, screech, derail material of like, uh uh-oh, well, she's out. So I will just say that scene where she said, you know, you can only be one, we're playing committee. And then as as a political campaigner, as someone who sets up like hearings in (laughs) state houses that is my dream i would love someone who can come in and say well tell me the people on the committee and here's how i would answer based on each of their questions that Mm -hmm. that is it is a great moment i live for that moment the one that i find really funny is when they come back in after the i love her mind i love her shoes yeah yeah and they say you know like humorous what would you find in a background check the look on Toby's face when she says, in high school, I smuggled a copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover out of the library. His face is just like, you are adorable. You've never <laughs> done anything bad in your life. And he's just resting his face in his hands like, you are so sweet and innocent. And then she drops this bomb, which the two of them, like, oh, this is disqualifying. Instantly. And the scene where she's drinking her water of like, I see, I see that. I see having an abortion as just at, like, it is not a problem. I am completely confident in this decision. I have a right to privacy. I've done nothing wrong. I'm just going to watch you two freak out. 
Yeah. And well, and they surely do. <laughs> so, uh, let's have... So, how long have we been recording? I'm just taking a little uh, break a, a while. A while. We, we've been in for 30 minutes. So, tell you what, let's take a brief break, and then I want to address probably, like, I want to talk briefly politically about the abortion thing. And yeah. then we can keep going. So, let's take a brief break. Welcome back. So, really, the the entire show, like the the premise of the conflict that they're running into, is that Evelyn Baker Lang has had an abortion in her past. She is a brilliant jurist. She is a wonderful person. Everybody loves her, and mm-hmm. the fact that she had an abortion, which, as the precedent notes, is completely legal. Um, yes, it was after 1973. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> disqualifies her entirely from uh, professional advancement. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to just actually going to disagree with you on that a little bit. Um, Part of the original reason that she's an issue before they find out that she's actually had an abortion is she has, um, she has ruled and struck down a parental consent law requiring parental consent for women under the age of 18 to access an abortion if they're pregnant, Um, which was a, a thing at the time this episode was written. Um, And at least from my work in reproductive health, is still an issue, but has is no longer like one of the big issues surrounding a woman's right to access an abortion if necessary. Um, but that so she comes in already with a tinge of reproductive health and women's right. rights on her. Right. It's not the, the only problem. Like she, you know, the bigger problem is that she's like a lefty firebrand in the fiction of the show, and that and, the you know that would upset that she, the Republicans. And that she would be biased towards women who've had an abortion because she herself has had one. So it's a little more nuanced than just like she's accessed this right and that's and people don't like it. It's more that it would influence her about how she would rule as evidenced by she's ruled against parental consent laws. And also they're worried about the PR flare up that will happen when, you know, the people who are both pro and anti-abortion get all up in arms about this. Right. Well, because they're clearly already up in arms because throughout the show, you hear them obliquely and sometimes via a couple shots, just referencing that there are hundreds of protesters. Yeah. Josh actually (laughs) walks through the crowd at one point while on his cell phone. Uh, and yeah, you see a bunch of signs that are either pro or anti-abortion. And again, so, the only issue that women care about. Correct. <laughs> the female well, also, issue. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, half the population. This is the only thing that's important to them, right? Yeah, this is all. This is all we talk about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so I also like what prompted me to kind of go down this this path is that we have recently finished watching the first season of the Morning Show on Apple Plus, which is. Stacked cast, good writing, okay show, like things. And basically one of the points of contention in it is that Reese Witherspoon's character, spoiler alert, mentions her abortion on air on a television show. And the reaction is basically the same. It was sev- it's 17 years down the road yep. from this episode of The West Wing. Yeah, and then the needle has barely moved. <laughs> I don't know, it's just... The, the again it's just like the Israel Palestine thing it's it's playing the hits and I guess I, I don't know how that makes me feel <laughs> uh, it, it, the show also doesn't really grapple with it in any true way where Bartlett just sort of dismisses it with like uh, like I said any other legal things we're, we're worried about and then after that everyone's like okay we're fine with it I guess it is frustrating as a reproductive health advocate and woman um, that, yeah, there's never a discussion on either side about why, first of all, this is a completely legal activity. She has a right to privacy. She has the right to terminate a pregnancy. Um, I love Bartlett's response. Um, Yes, it's the correct argument, but it also just dismisses the situation. But it also never talks about why does that decision invalidate anything about her professionalism 
or her ability to do her job. This is a this is a healthcare choice that she made in the second year of law school. And how is this relevant to anything that she is doing as a as potentially getting a promotion? That's what we're mm-hmm. talking about. This is a exactly. workplace issue. She's about to get a promotion or she's up for one, but she made a healthcare decision when she was in her 20s that now disqualifies her. Um, so it is it is frustrating. It is also, I don't love the comparison that Toby makes to slavery. Um, they are very different on a number of issues and both incredibly important topics that are nuanced and impactful. The way that they use it is this like idea of a single issue. And historically, I disagree with that comparison. Um, but it's also just oversimplifying, which is what the West Wing does. It oversimplifies everything. Mm-hmm. They never actually go into any of the details of how she made a decision. They also don't talk about what Christopher Mulready thinks about this issue. We can guess, but it's on really what they're doing is they're undermining the liberal push they're trying to make in protecting this right by potentially putting an anti-choice vote on the Supreme Court as well. Mm-hmm. So you're not actually protecting this right if you're putting <laughs> him on the court at all. Right. So, well, and so this gets us to the Donna's cats part of the episode where, which is why are they dealing with two? Why do we keep talking about a conservative justice and, and William Fickner and all these things? Well, because Donna, when presenting Josh with some cookies that her mom baked, tells the story about how the fact that each of her parents wanted one cat and since they had been married for 36 years and were used to compromise, they decided to compromise and get both cats, even though one didn't really like the other one and, and vice versa. And this is the uh, logic that Josh chooses to pursue to uh, to fix the Supreme Court situation. He looks at Donna with a level of disdain when he says cat people and Stu, i don't know if you took offense to that as much as i did yeah they have two cats that's not cat oh no we also have two we also have two yes two yes (laughs) proudly yeah Yeah, it's not it's not a nine or twelve cat situation it's two cats i mean nine or twelve cats is honestly Stu's happy place like he would love to have nine to twelve yeah i'm I'm not and i'm not judging that either but at that point you could safely call them cat people and you know i don't think people would get offended when they had nine or twelve cats but yeah like two but i gotta say like oh really hitting your core demographic where it hurts there josh like don't Disc, yeah, people. <laughs> yeah they're also, probably his core voters. This is the this is a another kind of classic, as we were just saying, like the West Wing simplification, where it's like it's a from the mouths of babes type of situation. Where where, where Don, oh, Donna's parents have the wisdom. <laughs> yeah, and we're we're stymied. Like we are the brilliant most brilliant political minds in the world, and yet we can't figure out how to We can't negotiate. figure out this this Gordian knot of a Supreme Court situation, <laughs> yeah. and, and here comes Donna's parents with a sword. <laughs> I do, will say, as a political operative, like, we, we look for these moments when you have a problem that, like, oh, I either have to just kind of fight my way through it, or I think of something really creative to do to, like, outfox this problem I keep coming up on like these are fun moments when you think of something really great that these do happen they're amazing when they do this is silly this is not <laughs> like it's it is absurd but in the political world like I do enjoy it when these things happen you're like sure oh, you know how we could outfox this this kind of creativity is what people think we do all the time and it happens occasionally, but it's not like, yeah, I don't sit around and eat. I mean, I would gladly sit around and eat cookies and talk about cats if it would get me these kinds of results. But um, <laughs> that's, that, not, that's not you don't happen. you don't just get the Jeff Goldblum Eureka moment when discussing uh, cat adoption. Shockingly <laughs> enough, that does that is not usually when it happens. Yeah. So so Jeff Josh gets this Eureka moment and is like, aha, much like how a positive and a negative ion cancel each other out, so too will a lefty and a righty vote on the Supreme Court. And so therefore, why don't we convince Judge Oldie Mick about to die 
that he should step down, we'll replace him with Glenn Close, and then the dead guy who just died will replace with this conservative dipshit William Faulkner is playing. Faulkner. <laughs> sure. Faulkner. Faulkner. That'd, that'd be a hell of a guest star. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Fickner. That's what I meant to say, yes. I also love that in no, as they're, le- once they get the name, because they take it to to Roy Ashland, the liberal mm-hmm. lion, mm-hmm. Um, and he says, like, let me see, like, what kind of segregationist and racist they will put up for, the, if they're just given an opening. And the arguments against Chris Mulready seem to be pretty strong. Toby has a very long list of, you know, shoving things down the garbage disposal and like no right to use a condom, no right against electronic searches. The yeah, he's a real also, shithead. Yeah, the president also has a long list of, you know, something about the EPA and the endangered species list. Like there are some very real things that I would love to dig in on and find out why he ruled against some of these things. The only time we get any semblance of that is Chris Mulready's conversation with Toby as he's waiting to go meet the president where they're talking about the Defense of Marriage Act, which he's still kind of an ass, but I can follow his logic. Ultimately, it just becomes that he's actually a secret liberal and would strike down the Defense of Marriage Act, which is like, but his other (laughs) stuff is, I still don't like electronic search and seizures. Wait, but look, back up. He had one liberal opinion, so he's basically a good guy now. And he's nice to the president. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is this is where kind of the show just goes hardcore down up its own ass, where it's just like <laughs> Yeah. Because because we do see these glimpses of how these legal minds come about to their perspectives on these things, and it just so happens that the guy we're supposed to be afraid of secretly agrees with us. Don't tell anybody, though. Like, I... Yeah. What what a fantasy. <laughs> yeah. but, but I actually like, want to know about your right to use a condom. Wait, we're talking about a reproductive health storyline. Can, yeah. can we talk about that a little bit? Cause, no, it wait. just kind of gets <laughs> dropped and mentioned and offhanded, uh, but never really picked up and ran with. And also, uh, I, uh, I had something and I, I would just And I would Go disagree ahead. that he is the same as Evelyn Baker Lang. If, as as Brad Whitford, as Josh says, he said, you know, like, this is the, she is to them what he is to us. I don't think, I have, I don't hear Evelyn Baker Lang going off about how corporations are evil and they should be shut down and capitalism should be, should be, you know, right. removed and everyone gets free health care. I hear her talking about one issue. She's pro-abortion. Calmly. Yeah, she's pro-choice. Pro-choice. And, and... He, but the other stuff, like, I actually don't think they are equal sides of the coin. I think he sounds really terrible. No, she is, like, one degree left of center, and he is, uh, as Toby put it, a, a 45-year-old spry conservative ideologue who will sit in that seat for 45 years. Yeah, and, and I get that's that's what ultimately is is somewhat just, like, cringy about the concept. It's that these they they paint Mulready's interactions with everybody as dragging him to the left where we all where we all kind of squishily hang out with the Democratic Party or whatever in this case when they have spent all these words describing how he's actually not like that he's actually fucking awful mm-hmm. and what an interesting opportunity to have a character like Amy come in and say, Amy, what would you do? <laughs> mm-hmm. If we have this chance, what mm-hmm. would you do? Well, and I wanted to see them argue more. It's it's weird that Toby is the voice of the pro-moderate argument, but I did want to see this argument play out. Uh, and I'll, I'll ask you, Emma, because I want to hear your opinion. When they're discussing it, as opposed to the Donna's two cats plan, what about appointing two moderate but shitty Democrats to the court instead, like Toby wanted to do? I mean, I don't love it, but my job is to be somewhat more moderate. I'm but wouldn't, a perfect- wouldn't the court get a lot more done? Like, I think even with two shitty corporate Dems, it's going to be way better than having one conservative fucking prick on the yeah. court. And you as, know? as we've seen in recent years, the court ebbs and flows. 
it it moves and shifts regardless. And once you're on the court, there's no telling how you're going to rule on certain things. The piece that I think they overlook that's actually important and works in favor of the Donna Katz plan is the chief justice gets to set the agenda. To an extent, it's going to be more liberal because there's a liberal in the seat. Having Evelyn be chief justice is a lot, you know, they get a lot more since she's right. chief justice. Yeah. But if you're, if, if it's, there's arguments to say if you don't want to have a big judicial fight, sure, take care of both of them right now. You want to be able to fill two seats, not one. Okay, do it now. Having moderates on the court is, some can argue, it is a better <laughs> way to govern. You are not going to legislate from the bench as much. You are going to review and give opinions that aren't going to shake things up drastically. But some of these long festering concepts do get resolved. Maybe not always the way that history wants them to be or that we see continue for multiple generations. But having firebrands on the court is not always a good thing. I mean, personally, I would love it if there were nine Evelyn Baker Langs. Right. But that's but, not the argument. The argument is to get an Evelyn like Baker Lang, we need to put a shitty conservative on. We have and to so, put an equally firebrand right. uh, for the per, right. Exactly. On the right, on the other side of it. And to, to if that's going to happen, out. then I want I want RBG on steroids. I want like right. an active Right, as opposed Very to... Very angry she, feminist. She, you know, she's <laughs> pro-choice, but doesn't seem to be like, you know, yeah. Doesn't and does we definitely also not talk, seem to be RBG. We don't talk about any of the other issues that come up from the court. They're, they talk about affirmative action, but we never hear how Evelyn Baker-Lang feels about that. No, they, nor do we hear how Fickner feels about abortion, like you said. So, yeah. Right. So, if this is... If she is pro-choice on one issue, it's... Yes, it is... This is the makeup of the court, and obviously that is a big deal and a and something that presidents grapple with. But we've seen that if you get the right you get the right circumstances, you can hurl it wildly to one side or the other. And moderation, again, I want this is my fantasy. I want a president to look at it through the lens of this isn't about policy about politics. It's about good policy. Uh, I mean, I think just it's another, again, kind of reflecting West Wing world versus real world here. And kind of this is why we why we grapple with the show, period. Right. I'm just buying the premise of the show here. And this is all within yeah. West Wing yeah, world yeah, yeah, yeah. that I'm asking yeah, yeah, yeah. the question. I, is I, it better to have it. like they view Evelyn as a plus one and they view uh, the other guy as a minus one and thus they cancel each other out? Would it be better to have two plus a halves instead, you know? Yeah, I just it's uh, to me the the legislating from the bench ship has sailed and sailed a long long time ago and I mean it's been the bulwark which is so funny because again here in the real world ever since you know Obama was elected and frankly you could argue that ever since George Bush stole the election in 2000 it it has never been the legislative body making the laws it has been it has been the court. Go ahead. Up. We didn't really know. I think I don't think it was part of the popular culture as much until Pre. he died that Scalia and Ginsburg were actually were were this. This is Scalia and Ginsburg that they were the the far extremes of both sides. They were actually really good friends. They went to the opera together. Um, and I don't think we knew that until he died and we really understood that this was a close friend and and the more depths of their relationship. Um, but part of the reason we didn't know that is because <laughs> it's not really, that's not a thing that anyone expected. And it's certainly not something that people understood until you really learn until, you know, she became notorious and he was long since dead and exact and sitting in hell exactly where he deserves to be. But that's what this is playing off of, this idea that you can get people who disagree so much that they actually strengthen each other. Right, that by by having the quote-unquote the discourse back and forth, they both strengthen their own arguments. Right. But it, it also, and again, this is something that we will talk about, it doesn't help that the discourse finds a happy medium 
several points to the right of any real political compass. Because the West Wing's perspective of a lefty lion is like, oh, we'll defend Roe and keep abortion safe, legal, and rare as it stands Mm -hmm. when that's not actually the the the, the, the opposite pole. From, they do nicely you know, give it up that the Republicans will have an easier time <laughs> taking down DOMA because the Democrats are so inept. Like, wow. Yes. True. <laughs> well, yeah, let's, uh, let's just presume, you know, that they're interested at all. Yeah, there's, and again, this is, you know, the, the, the premise of our show here has basically just been like, this has now informed so many people's perspectives on how right. this works. And this is part of what the damage it has done, I believe, in a modern yep. political setting is that it defines the one, the, the opposite poles as basically existing from the center to the theocratic right. Exactly. So, with we with do no enjoy, room for the left. We do enjoy sitting around drinking and singing American Pie. That is true in American politics. <laughs> yeah. We do and all really like to do that. That's what I was talking about earlier, where uh, they, they have to talk to Senator Pierce, and he d- he's an old alcoholic, and Ryan's like, Josh, do, do not try to keep up with him. You will not keep pace. And the next time we see Josh, he's just fucking sloshed off his ass because he tried to keep Slurring. up with him. Yeah, slurring words in the hallway when he has to talk to people. Um, so... We finally, 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 so they, they talk about Chris Mulready for a while, and then there is a big reveal where William Fickner, who we've been referring to Mulready as Fickner, Fickner's Mulready? Mulready is Fickner. The laces were out. Um, so he finally shows up, and I, he is an actor who is so prolific. He is like almost the, and to, to steal a phrase from Bill Simmons, podcast he's basically the joey pants mm-hmm. um like because he's the guy who's like oh joe pantoliano was in every single movie between 1995 mm-hmm. and 2003 yeah. but nobody ever knew his name and i feel like william fickner is in that uh that pantheon of actors because i remember him uh, from apollo being in Thir- go uh, armageddon I remember, or like Apollo Absolutely. 13. Well, one of those space movies. He's always like one of the hard commanders in a space movie. <laughs> well, again, I remember him from Go, where he pulls the two main characters into his room, and they're like really weirded out, and they're like, you want us to sell Amway? He's like <laughs> showing off his tight bod. It's like, holy shit, that guy. So um, we finally get the big reveal, and he shows up, and you know, they're talking, apparently... He and Allison Janney are on a show now that has five or six seasons on a network. I can't remember which network called Mom. It's a great show. No. I, okay. Yeah. I mean, I've I think never I've, heard I of think it. I've seen Janney in a commercial for that or something like that. And yeah, it looked like a sort of suburban sitcom sort of thing. It's it's better. It's deeper. Anna Ferris. It's a great show. Oh, OK, cool. All right. Um, it oh. just it ended abruptly. Pandemic. Oh. But, um, uh, figures. Allison Janney is a genius. Yeah, and... we. I mean, we've we've <laughs> praised Janney throughout the podcast uh, for years now. So obviously, I'm a big fan. So basically, this the the denouement comes around where they put you know Chris Mulready and Evelyn Baker Lang in a room together and have them have them like jurisprudence at each other. Mm-hmm. And this, and it's like, oh my god! And Josh and Toby are listening in. And they're like, this is it. This is what we need. And so, and they they finally get the president to sign off on it. And so they, the end of the episode is them announcing, hey, we're appointing both uh, Le- Lefty Lion Evelyn and uh, Christopher the conservative shithead, <laughs> while he gives. Charlie talking points on how oh, to support yeah. uh, affirmative action. Oh my action. god. On affirmative action, yeah. <laughs> that so oh yeah. Oh my god. Talking about how there's no black people in this episode. Well, Charlie does show up for like one minute here at the end, just <laughs> just so uh Mulready can like be like, no no no, see, your argument's all wrong, Charlie. You should be arguing about how affirmative action is actually good and helps society and whatnot, and not about how racism still happens. The um, the phrase Mulready uses is how applicants will thrive given this opportunity, 
and I just want to throw something at the television. And uh, he also says contribute to society or something yeah. like that. Like it's they have, they, like, they, they show better rates of contributing to society. It's like, yeah, they don't earn anything. They're just given this opportunity. That's what affirmative action is. They're given opportunities instead of working their butts off to earn anything that looks like equality it's just an infuriating conversation well, and then the the best part is that charlie doesn't get enraged by this but just goes like oh what a good point i need to take I, notes i should take notes on this before yeah. we then turn to the woman <laughs> staring like a like a a doe at this it's just like yeah one of them's working and one of them is looking dreamily into her future i want more with the glenn close character i want more of these scenes where she is and she smart and capable and leading and she won't be on the show ever again ever again well the character does return i will say that the character returns in the finale episode because <laughs> spoiler Oh right. She, as they as they say that she, you know, it's a bit premature to sign with the title. No, it's not. The assumption is that she does get confirmed because she Justice. has to swear in the next president. Right. She swears Spoiler in. Alert. So, yeah, uh, we could ju- we could say it's Jimmy Smith's. <laughs> well, she has to swear in the next president. It is not Glenn Close that returns. You only see a short blonde haired woman she is referred to as the character's name yes she, they, yes she does the character returns in this in the series finale. <laughs> but they could but they couldn't get glenn close back so i mean for just for just one shot which fair enough you know well so i mean i guess really at that to, to that point i wish if they had if they had done this better and if it wasn't just i, I still just don't understand if they're like throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks here why not a make little this bit two episodes why not make this mm. Yeah, this is your big. This is like your. This is your big moment, right? Like you've got your big guest stars. You're tackling a big storyline of of seating a super. As Bartlett says, these are probably the only two vacancies he will fill, and as we know, they are the only two vacancies he fills. Uh, Not counting almost. Season five seems to be the we will tackle very big issues and get it done. It's the sitcom season mm-hmm. where We're like, everything has to wrap up in one episode we take on social security we done t- <laughs> we yeah done. Check, <laughs> check. check it off the list check like this is just what they do in this season where Supreme yeah it's a court check check no problem um it's just a it is i mean i we you call it lazy you could also i think that they're just scared i think they are scared to mm-hmm. take on such a complex situation that it would have to go into two filling two hours is hard right and these Good are point. weighty issues and easier to just stay at this tertiary level of like oh there are, wait right. there's pictures of cats right yeah all the stuff that we wanted them to dig into is complex and and difficult stuff to dig into so they rather than that they're just like ah, just bang it all out in 41 minutes Right. Done. And they're and they're starting to see they're getting a little more confident. They're going to start to seed a multi-episode arc that really does take over and completely redraw lines within the White House by the, the fictional White House. Yeah, we see a major character die. Um, we have a huge staffing shakeup. We have new characters introduced. Like it, the they're not doing it as well as Sorkin, but they are trying to seed into a multi-episode arc. Yeah, they're willing to, you know, put their money where their mouth is and actually try to, you know, push stakes on the show and actually push the show in a direction. So kudos for finally getting there. Uh, sad that it took them this long. And you are going to have to sit through the live episode, which is next, which is... Oh, oh no. no. There's first. <laughs> okay, first off, which live episode? Because there's two. The, the debate one's technically live as well. The debate one is, yeah, I think that's actually officially live. This is the behind-the-scenes access oh, where you, like, follow oh, CJ no. around. Oh, um, the one that, oh, the fictional documentary episode. Oh. Yeah, that's next. That's access. So that's season uh. five, episode 18. I apologize <laughs> that you guys are, I'm not, I'm not watching it with you. Still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you've, uh, you've laid out a good roadmap for where we're going for the rest of season five. So I think that's a pretty good note to uh, wrap up this episode on. Any final thoughts? Or, and then I mean, we'll get- I, told, I told you guys while we weren't recording, but I love the fashion in this episode. I yeah, think go it's on. Really exciting. <laughs> um, first, just so you, if, if you are as in love with Glenn Close in this episode as I am, she does facial yoga. 
She's kind of known for it. So that's why her skin looks so amazing. She takes very good care of herself. <laughs> she still looks incredible. She is. She's a goddess. Um, she has some great... She wears much softer colors than a lot of the female characters have been allowed to in the past. It's been a lot of... They do this a lot with CJ where they try and masculinize CJ and make her one of the guys, even though she's still like the mm. woman in the room. Happens yeah. a lot. They try yeah. and keep her away from the dowdiness. Yeah, and there's really no pastels. There's no, But Evelyn yeah. Baker Lang is just a soft cloud. that wa- There's a great <laughs> scene where she's walking the hallways with Toby and Joss, and she's in this fantastic coat. Um, and just this wonderful little bright light of of calm and serenity and um i i love her suits donna and cj both also get really great they're feminizing them a little bit more both with their hair donna's hair is in this great like half back thing um and both of them get really good jackets and i am it is forever just like such an an irk that my favorite one of my favorite outfits that CJ gets to wear is this great black jacket with this really interesting simple collar and you don't get to see it it's at the very end of the episode when she spills something on her red shirt the shell she's wearing and she says like can you see this and Josh says yes she's like it'll dry and doesn't wear the jacket properly so you can't see how good it is and it's it's just such a good potential fashion moment that they steal from me because they had her spill on herself, which she's never done before. Ah, god damn it. Um, but I hope this is I hope it was intentional that these mm. two characters are becoming a little bit more feminine. Evelyn Baker Lang seems to give them that. Lisa Wolf also has you know, she is a very strong female character. She's only here for these for these few episodes. We're talking about judicial nominees. Yeah, she's um, a bit of a foil for Josh. And an interesting one, but she is also still a little bit more masculinized in in what she's wearing. Yeah, um, very like the, power suity kind of. Yeah, but you do get Debbie, who is always a wonderful canvas to watch how they dress Debbie and her little banana yes. pin. Yes, I light um, up any time Lily Tomlin's on screen. She's uh, delightful. How could you not? <laughs> and then Evelyn Baker Lang in her final, uh, in the final scenes, she has a wonderful brooch as well that um, is just really beautiful on on that jacket. So it's... And- this has been the fashion segment of The Worst Wing. I love it. <laughs> the- Thank you. Emma, fashion reporter. <laughs> well, when I mean, when there's actually things to talk about that aren't like Josh and Toby's fucking horrible like 2003 NBA class awful suits. suits, yeah, <laughs> NBA baggy oh suits, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, Just I love that picture. Miserable. So I love that there's actually something to talk about yes. in that regard. <laughs> we will meet some new female characters that take us back to the very like, oh, what are you wearing? Um, but uh, this this one is always, I feel like, you know, there's a female writer on this episode. It's a female director on this episode. The, um, we do call back to Abby. Um, part of the reason this is my favorite is it highlights these women. And um, I love that the entire episode, the women are doing their job and the boys are freaking out about stuff and <laughs> about, a really inane about conversation. stupid, stupid bullshit. Yeah. And the women are just getting shit done. Donna is invaluable. The guy they've they've forced her to supervise is there because and is there doing stupid fuck ups because his uncle is too powerful. Like really, I also, I also like the note that uh, Josh steals Donna's idea and gives her zero credit for it. By the way, in fact, actually says to her, "Never tell that story ever again." It bans her from bringing it up. Yeah. <laughs> so well, it, yeah, and we you know we we bitched about. <laughs> We, we bitched about the Andy and Toby thing, and it's like, Andy is also just, she literally basically just tells Toby to fuck off, and I'm going to do what I feel like, because I'm a fucking member of Congress. Yeah. She also calls him out for being, like, a shitty father, where, like, he doesn't seem to really, because of the Protestant work ethic of West Wing, he hasn't been present with his kids at all. Uh, and this is something that will continue, presumably. Thank God she didn't marry him again. Yeah, no well kidding. Well done, Andy. <laughs> yep. All right, I think that's about uh, that's about it. So thank you, Emma, for joining us. Yeah, as always, a delight to have you here and weigh in, uh, Alan, so on this fun, fun episode, the best episode of season five. I can definitely say that without qualification. As yep. an episode of television, low, low bar. 
Yeah, the, the lowest bar to clear, but it fucking cleared it. It was entertaining and engaging. I was never bored. I think focusing on one main storyline throughout really helped the writers at least keep, you know, keep you engaged throughout the episode, if nothing else. And you get two fantastic guest stars. I wish that they that they co- I wish they would come back. They don't. I s- surely do as well, but these are both just one-offs, unfortunately. And as much as I might disagree with the reality of what they talk about, I love their dialogue. I yes. love listening to it. I yeah. wish it was real. It's back to the almost the Sorkin-esque dialogue yes. level. Yeah. I yeah. was I was going to wrap up. It's the last thing in my notes here where it's just this is actually both a Sorkin-esque thing, but a throwback to, frankly, in my brain at least, and at this when this episode was airing, I was 20, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. This is how I thought intellectual people spoke did stuff. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, hello, I know what you, my enemy, is going to say, and therefore I will describe to you how I will dominate your argument, turn it around back on its head, and tell you how you're wrong. And it's very, it's of a time of, I imagine, a lot of people's lives where they're just like, oh, I am, you know, just king shit here because I can describe exactly what you're thinking. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just of a time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, that does it for this particular episode of The Worst Wing. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back to discuss the next episode, that awful Axis episode that Emma just (laughs) mentioned. I'm so sorry. Yeah, well, this is our penance and our Sisyphean torment that we have chosen. It gets better. It's a rolling act of of mortification for my sins. You you have good new characters coming, I promise. (laughs) Uh, The the light at the end of the tunnel will come eventually. But thanks, as always, for listening. Um, As always, you can drop comment in, in either of our threads, or if you found the show another way, hello, welcome, and you can email the show. Any questions, comments, thoughts, fan feedback, we love to get it at theworstwing69 at gmail.com. Nice. Which is always nice. And so for myself, Emma, and Stu, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Stay safe. Bye. Send all the money you ask for, but don't ask me to come on along.